0: We do about four of these services a year, and the the main purpose is really so that we get to be all together. We normally have two morning services, so this is an opportunity to get us all together. For two of those services each year, we're, we're usually hoping that the sun will go under the clouds and just move away, and then for the other two services, we're just wishing the sun would come out just a little bit more and warm things up. If you at some point get really uncomfortable, please just get up if you need to go inside if you need to don't 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 sit and, and just be really really uncomfortable um, if that's the case. Something that we all try to do on a regular basis is consider what matters most of all the things that we have to do what what are the priorities what are the, the things that maybe are not just good, but best. Often it's a trade-off between something that we'd like to do, but something that we need to do. And we're trying to sort out what, what matters, what's pressing, what's good versus best. Churches do that to some degree too. We cannot be all things to all people in some sense. Grace Bible Church it has its own philosophy of ministry. We are word-centered, We are Christ-centered. We are gospel-centered. We teach and study and proclaim, preach the Word of God. We believe that Jesus Christ is the focal point of that Word, and we believe that His good news is necessary for all people, even for we who've already put our trust in it to be reminded of, that the gospel is central to what we teach. And so those things drive us. They help drive how we do ministry, what we see as priorities. One of the directions that that has led us toward as a body over the last decade or so has been to increase our emphasis on local church membership. The elder team has, has tried to be more intentional uh, about teaching about membership and emphasizing membership from what we see in the New Testament, and we've taught more about it, and it's been a real blessing just to see growth in this area over the last few years. There are a little over 150 people right now, adults who consider Grace Bible Church to be the place that they are covenant members of. And that, that is, that's a wonderful testament to people taking seriously what's been taught about membership and what we believe the New Testament says. But the, the biblical case for membership is not just a sort of one and done thing that we teach on and then just sort of leave aside. It's something we need to be reminded of. Um, Something that we need to spend some time on, the nature of our area, with military families who are stationed here for a time, and then PCS elsewhere, uh, reminds us that these are things we need to bring up from time to time. And also, over the past year, the the elder team has really been studying and thinking a little bit more about the connection between the ordinances and membership. And by ordinances, I'm referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper, two activities that Jesus Christ very clearly ordains and then commands for the church to practice, baptism in the Lord's Supper. And so this morning, we're going to consider baptism as it relates to membership, and then next Sunday, the Lord's Supper as it relates to membership. None of what I say will represent any kind of dramatic shift in our thinking as much as it reflects, I think, just some growth in the elders' thinking in terms of how these connect, how these ordinances and membership all sort of intertwine. And so for this morning, my aim, and you have them in the, the notes there, the sermon notes, my aim is to, to show you three points from Scripture. Membership matters, baptism matters, and there's connection between the two, connecting baptism to membership. Um, back in January of, of 2021, we had, the elder team had made some changes to the Church covenant that members sign, and so we spent a couple of weeks and talked about these things, preached a couple of sermons related both to the covenant and to membership. I'm not gonna reiterate everything that I said in that second sermon that was primarily in membership, but if you have questions about membership, biblical view of membership, please talk to one of the elders or go back, uh, I think it was January 10th, the second Sunday in January of 2021, If that's a sermon that you want to um, listen to again. Um, But I, I do want to reiterate some points about membership and just emphasize some things again that I think we see in Scripture. If you turn to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start in Matthew 16. By the record of the writers of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus used the word church, at least as far as the Gospels record, used it two times. The first time here in Matthew 16. He had just made a stunning declaration to his disciples, which was to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's an incredible thing to say. Here is this rabbi from Nazareth who is essentially denouncing the leaders of established Judaism of that day. Jesus is warning that those that the people looked to for insight into God's word, that they were to beware of the teaching of these so-called religious experts in their day. We know that's in large part because those those so-called religious experts had failed to even comprehend that the very Messiah sent from God was in their presence, that in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God had come to them, and they not only did not recognize that, they rejected him and were blind to that truth. And so Jesus gives this warning and then says to his disciples, now, who do you say that I am? The Religious leaders have completely missed this. Who do you say? And Peter correctly declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the, the, the anointed one of God who has been sent the, as the savior. He's, he's confessing Jesus as the one who is uniquely, create, uniquely connected, related to God the Father when he describes him as son of God. And here's how Jesus replies, and here's what I want you to see. Verse 17, Matthew 16, verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus identifies Peter as this kind of foundational stone. This does not mean that Peter then becomes this sort of uniquely first in a line of universal church leaders, but you simply need to look at the ministry of Peter to understand what it is that Jesus is talking about in terms of how Peter is used in the proclamation of the gospel. He is the, the first to preach the authoritative gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. He is the one who proclaims the truth of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and what it means and what it is to turn to Jesus Christ. It was Peter who was sent to Samaria to a group of people that the Jews often looked down on, a mixed-race people, in order for Peter to go and, and be the church's eyes to see that what they had received was indeed the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was Peter who was responsible for taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the house of Cornelius, to, to bring it to the Gentiles, to, to proclaim the truth to them and see that it was the Gentiles who were receiving the very same spirit as that which was poured out on the day of Pentecost. So at a time in the first century when Jewish religious authorities were notoriously um, separating themselves, making it very hard for people to believe in in the one true God who, who very much had narrowed the way to say that we've figured out the path to heaven and we're isolating people and cutting people off. Peter throws the gates open. Peter is sent out to proclaim the gospel and to say to people of every tongue and tribe, there is a savior in Jesus Christ. And if you will turn to him and believe in him, he will save you. And so his preaching is used on those occasions by the Spirit of God to, to bring many into God's kingdom. And that explains that idea when he says the keys of the kingdom in verse 19. It, it's really that this picture of opening the door to the kingdom, making the way to others to, to come into that kingdom. But, but in verse 18, it's the first time Jesus refers to something called his church. On this rock I will build my my church, my ecclesia, my called-out ones. The proclamation of the gospel would first formally go forth from Peter, and then it would be built on this foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the proclamation of the gospel would go forth, much as Ephesians 2.20 describes the the foundation of the church and builds from there. Upon that foundation of, of preached good news... Jesus then is building this unstoppable, ever-growing, living organism, this body of believers into what he describes as his called-out people, and building it in such a way that even all of the powers of evil assembled against it could not stop it. He would continue to build his church. We belong to something that will never be stopped. And so there's the, the first reference to the church and this idea of sort of keys of the kingdom and and he even mentions binding and loosing. If you turn over to Matthew 18, this is the only other place in the gospels where we see Jesus using that word church. This is the passage that starts in verse 15, Matthew 18 starting in 15 on down that that describes to believers how to handle situations in which sin divides us. When a brother or sister sins against us or or a believing a person who who professes faith in Christ continues to carry on in sin and, and is not turning from that sin. Jesus gives steps toward reconciliation. Ultimately, what he says is if that brother or sister, that one who professes faith but is carrying on in sin will not be reconciled, will not turn from their sin, look at his conclusion. Verse 17, he says, tell it to the church And then he says, if he refuses to listen to them, this is those who have sought reconciliation, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Similar language to what we saw in Matthew 16 as he's delegating to to Peter this responsibility that will be carried on through the church. Of binding and loosing what 's happening here in in Matthew eighteen is someone who professed faith to, to profess to be a believer in Jesus Christ has now been carrying on in sin and they are not repenting from that sin they have been warned they've been admonished the the the, the sin has been evident, but they are persisting in it, and they are not repenting at some point after Patient and and loving attempts to bring about repentance and reconciliation, what he's describing here is the body, the the ecclesia that Jesus spoke of, must make the painful, difficult affirmation that this person who claimed faith in Christ is not behaving at all like a follower of Jesus Christ. It is the church that ultimately has to say this is not behavior that is representative of one who follows Jesus Christ, and when urged to turn from that behavior, the person will not. And so this person is now, we're relating to him or her different. We saw this last week in 2 Thessalonians. It goes from this admonishment now to this point of, they are now as one who is outside of the body of Christ and in need of the gospel, in need of repentance and embracing Jesus Christ. But but I point to this because those words in verse 18, loosing and binding, really describe the authority that Jesus vests in the local church. If a person professes to believe in Jesus Christ and belong to a local church but persists in the sin and is unwilling to repent of it, acknowledge and, and turn from it when confronted, then the church ultimately is given this responsibility to confirm that the person is no longer a part of the local body. He or she has rejected Jesus Christ by turning away from the fundamental truth that we are to be a people who repent, who turn from our sins, um, who acknowledge our sinfulness before Him. The the last resort action then is to essentially forbid that person. That's the idea of binding. It is to, to say that this person now is not functioning as a member of this local church. And that echoes back to the binding and loosing that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 16. The church is a local body. There's the universal church, but it's seen throughout the New Testament in local bodies over which Jesus Christ is Lord. It's called the church, and the authority to receive and dismiss the members that belong to that body lies with the body itself. Does that mean that it will always be done perfectly? No. It, it, the, the church is is not a perfect um, place, but it is a place that is as an embassy of of Jesus Christ. It is a place that represents Jesus Christ. And so this is something the church is called to do. So that when we get to the book of Acts, when what was established by God on the on the day of Pentecost is this identifiable body of believers now known as the church after Peter preached on Pentecost and he brings conviction to the people and tells how they were responsible for bringing the the, the very son of God to the place of crucifixion. After all of that message, the, the people respond under the conviction of God's spirit and they say, so what do we do? Tell us how we respond, Peter. Now what? God is just and holy, we we believe you, and now we are sinners and we're under the weight of that conviction, so what do we do? And Peter says this in Acts chapter two, verse 38. Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts two, then down in verse 41 further elaborates that 3,000 people who received Peter's preaching were baptized, and it says, added on that day. The 3,000 were added to a group that was identified back in Acts chapter 1, verse 15 as being about 120 people. There's a, a sort of numbering that we're seeing early in Acts that there was this group of about 120, and then on Pentecost, 3,000 are baptized and added, and so they formed this gathering of those who believed in Jesus Christ, who were baptized as a profession of their faith in Jesus Christ and who then were added to the assembly of believers that gathered for the apostles' teaching and for the breaking of bread and and fellowship that began to meet together then as a local church there in Jerusalem. This is the formation of a local church, an identifiable group of, of people who put their trust in Jesus Christ, and then are baptized. That's the pattern that we see going on in the book of Acts. Acts 2.47 says, The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 5 speaks of multitudes of men and women who were added to the Lord. Acts 11 shows this happening at Antioch, and again it uses the idea of they were added to the Lord. They believed and were added to the Lord. In each instance as is the case in all of the New Testament letters, they are either written to churches, to local churches, or they are written to those who are put in responsibility in local churches to shepherd and lead those churches. The case throughout the whole New Testament is there is a recognizable group of people who have coalesced around faith in Jesus Christ. They have come to believe in a body of doctrine that they hold to, And they proclaim that faith publicly through baptism and meet together as a local fellowship of believers. So what we do here at Grace, what we call covenant membership, is to try to follow that pattern. We believe that that membership matters, that those who are trusting in Jesus Christ should commit themselves to a local body of believers where they will function and serve and be an identified part of a local church where they will be accountable, where they will submit to the shepherding of a group of elders and participate in the life of that body and care for one another. But as we saw a moment ago from Acts 2.38, besides trusting in Jesus Christ, there seems to be one other important act that precedes membership in the body and that's baptism. All disciples of Jesus Christ believe that Jesus Christ commanded that those who follow him are to be baptized. and all comes from Matthew 28, 19. Jesus, in giving the Great Commission, says that you make disciples, what? Baptizing them. That that, that's immediately what falls in line with baptizing and then teaching them, but baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The thing that does separate us from some other believers in Jesus Christ is that we believe baptism is for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and not for the infant children of believers. This is not a judgment at all on the faith of those who hold to paedobaptism, baptism nor does it diminish our ability to fellowship with those brothers and sisters. It is, however, a distinctive that we believe matters when it comes to being a member of Grace Bible Church. And that's why our expectation of those who wish to become members, is that they are baptized as professing believers. Since we believe that the biblical pattern is faith in Christ and then baptism for those who profess faith in Christ, that's what we require, and that's always been the approach here at Grace for as long as Grace has been around. But let me make the connection from baptism to membership just a little more obvious, because this is the point really where I I want us to, to see that um, this is kind of more where along the lines of where the elders have been thinking on this for the last few months as we've talked about this. There are many verses on baptism in the New Testament. Many of them are in Acts, where it's just recorded history, where it speaks of people being baptized. They tell of people who came to faith and were baptized, all in obedience to Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, to the command of Jesus Christ. But Peter's preaching back in Acts chapter 2 that I mentioned a moment ago, The crowd comes under the conviction of the Spirit, says, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. It's possible to take that and distort it and turn it into a mode that someone called baptismal regeneration, the idea that baptism is actually required for a person's salvation. This does not mean that, because it's very clear from what Jesus taught and from what the apostles then taught following up on on Jesus's preaching throughout the New Testament, that a person is saved not by works. We are saved by faith, right? By putting your trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. It is God's gracious work that draws us to him, and we believe that Jesus' died and rose again, and that his death was to pay the price for sinners. So salvation only happens as grace enables a sinner to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism then follows as an act of obedience to the command of Jesus. Baptism is the public confession of one's faith in Jesus Christ. And in Matthew and in Acts, baptism seems to take priority, following immediately after faith in Jesus Christ. It becomes that sort of initial act of obedience for the believer. Baptism is the first thing commanded by Jesus for new disciples in Matthew 28, 19, make disciples baptizing them. And in Acts 2, baptism again is closely tied to that moment of conversion. And in Acts 2, baptism precedes all of the other activities, Of life in the body. As you read on from Acts 2.38, it is after they are then added to the body and they gather regularly with the local church for fellowship and for teaching and for taking part in the Lord's Supper and for prayer. And that's because the New Testament understood baptism as a a kind of initiation to life in the body. There's a helpful little book that... um, Bobby Jameson, he's a pastor up at Capitol Hill Baptist, has has done on this topic. He calls baptism the passport of Christ's kingdom here on earth. It identifies someone as a citizen of his kingdom. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I just want to emphasize this for you from 1 Peter chapter 3. Towards the end of, of, of 1 Peter 3, Peter's urging believers imitate Christ, especially in, in seeing your suffering as an imitation of Christ. So even if we are being slandered or reviled, we are to boldly stand for Jesus. And and so Peter uses the crucifixion of Jesus to show that even in Christ's greatest suffering, God is accomplishing this redemptive work that will, will draw sinners to himself. So he's accomplishing victory over darkness. Verse 19 of 1 Peter 3 speaks of Jesus after his crucifixion, declaring God's judgment on fallen angels who rebelled against the Creator. This is a, I'm, I'm just skimming over some of this passage because this is one of those notoriously difficult passages. You can spend more time looking at it this week. but But it describes Jesus as speaking now to fallen angels to declare to him that God's victory has been accomplished. They have been defeated. But then Peter writes... These fallen angels, he relates back to being a supernatural force in the days of Noah. They were, they, they were involved in enticing the world to hate Noah, to mock Noah because of Noah's faithfulness. And so that, that, those fallen angels are part of the, the evil that is that, that's moving throughout the world, that, that is leading people away from God. In the same way, what Peter's saying here is he understands that believers as he's writing to them, just as believers today will face hatred and mocking. But verse 20 says God delivered Noah and those with him in the ark through the waters, the waters being God's judgment. So they are, they're being delivered through the judgment of God in, in this ark. And then he completes the comparison between us and Noah in verse 21. And here's where I just want us to key in for a few minutes. Baptism which corresponds to this, this deliverance that he's just described, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter's point was not that there was something magical about the water. It wasn't in Noah's day. It wasn't the water that was somehow magical, and it's not in baptism either. What saved Noah was faith in the Lord, right? He obeyed God. God gave him commands and he obeyed God. He put his faith in God and he did what he was commanded to do. And the same is true for you and I. It's not the, the waters of baptism that themselves save, but rather, as he says at the end of that verse, it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It, it is by our ultimate trust in the, when we speak, the New Testament speaks of the resurrection, it's obviously including in that the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. It is through our belief in what Jesus did in dying on the cross and rising from the grave that we are saved. And, and ultimately, his resurrection affirms that his death was sufficient to pay for man's sin. How then does water baptism figure into the equation here in verse 21? I think Peter's meaning here hinges on the word appeal and the Greek word behind appeal when he says uh, the appeal to God of a good conscience. The the Greek word could have the the legal sort of meaning of making an appeal um, in in terms of in a court setting, but the way Peter uses it here, it also has a a different legal nuance. The the word also could mean a, a pledge or a response to one who is being questioned or investigated. Um, in, in some sense, this is I, I pledge to say what is true. People in our culture would say, I, "I swear to God that this is true." That's sort of the vernacular of the world. But the the language of making that affirmation that what I'm saying to you in testimony is true. So help me God. That that sort of pledge. And so what Peter's picturing here is what would have been the practice in the early church, we know that from other writings from the early church, and also is something that we try to emulate today in baptism, and that is the person being baptized is asked about their relationship with Jesus Christ. It's like there's an inquiry of, well, tell me what you believe, and and, and tell me, are you now committing yourself by God's grace to follow Jesus? And so this is where in the, the moment of baptism, There is this act of public profession of faith, essentially in the form of of a pledge that says, yes, by God's grace, I am here to say I follow Jesus Christ. I am being baptized publicly because I want you to know I have trusted in him and I am following him. So Peter's point here is that the waters of baptism don't wash away sin. He says that clearly. That's the work of God's spirit. But, But baptism gives that sort of solemn public oath ceremony where the follower of Jesus Christ says, I want you to know I was lost. I was in darkness. I was separated from God. But by his grace, he saved me, and I am now trusting in him, and I am desiring to follow him. That's why we do what we do in baptisms where people share these glorious testimonies of God's goodness and his grace, because that's the, that's the public declaration of who I have put my trust in and who I am now following. And that's why when it, it, it's really pledge here, that's why Peter then adds that little phrase, good conscience, the pledge of a good conscience towards God is how one translation puts it. It is not some half-hearted commitment. The one being baptized is saying, I am, with my whole being, seeking to follow after Jesus Christ. I am seeking to love God with my heart, soul, and mind. And and I want that public. I want you to understand that what I'm doing in baptism is not only sharing a testimony of what God has done, but I am pledging, on the basis of a good conscience, my desire to follow after Jesus Christ. And so baptism has always... Played this important role in the life of the body of Christ in terms of marking out those who belong to Christ, who have trusted in Christ, who have declared their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Baptism is the, the first act of obedience, in a sense, because Jesus commanded it and because it is the, the new or, or newer believer, if you will, that is now pledging to follow him. It says to the body, This is one of us. This is one who comes alongside and professes as we do and believes as we do. And so by pledging to follow Jesus, this person is declaring accountability to the local church. I wanna do this in the context of community with brothers and sisters. Remember again, I wanna tie this back to the binding and loosing back in Matthew 18. Not only does the church have on the the end stages of church discipline, the painful task of affirming that someone who claims to be a believer is not acting like one, but the church is also receiving into membership those who have clearly affirmed their faith in Jesus Christ and their following of Jesus Christ. And that's the connection that our elder team is seeking to make clear. That's really what I'm Leading you to this morning to see, we, we have an online book that most of you have read at one time or another. It's called the Discover Book. If you go to and, and I've noted it, I think in the questions in your sermon notes, if you go to our website and look under membership, you go under membership and you'll find the Discover book. It's a sort of handbook, a, a, a kind of a this is why we do what we do. This is what we value. This is what we we believe in terms of our confession of faith. This is kind of who we are as a church that is committed to the word of God and the gospel and, and, and to Jesus Christ. And so here's why we do what we do. And in that Discover book, we've recently added some new language, and you see it in the sermon notes there. It says this, we believe the New Testament links baptism and membership. Because of this, we do not baptize adults who do not desire to commit to membership. In unique circumstances, we would baptize an adult if they are unable to covenant with grace in membership yet are soon to do so with another biblical church. The, the, the thing that's changing, if you will, in, in terms of our application of these things that we're talking about this morning is really that middle sentence, because of this we do not baptize adults who do not desire to commit to membership. We, what we're saying is we don't, we don't see a scenario in the New Testament where someone says, I believe in Jesus Christ. I have turned to him as savior. I want to follow him, but I'm I'm not willing to, to align myself with a local church. I'm not willing to covenant myself or commit myself to a local church where I would be accountable or where growth would be fostered. And so the idea that I intend to follow Jesus, but I turn away from a local church is not consistent with what we see in the New Testament. The idea of the lone ranger sort of Christian who doesn't want to be accountable to anyone else. The normal sequence that we see in the New Testament is that the person by God's grace responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ by turning from self and sin and fully trusting in Jesus Christ, then entering into baptism, committing to follow after Jesus Christ and being added to the body of believers in the form of a local church where that person will serve and and participate and be accountable. And that's why we've come to this place of trying to be more serious about linking baptism and membership and the importance of becoming a member. So let me say this, what does that mean? May mean that it's time for you to seriously consider baptism. If you have not been baptized, and yet by faith you have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, you believe the truth of the gospel, that you are a sinner, that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, and that by him dying on the cross, he paid the price for your sins, and and you have sought forgiveness of your sins through trusting in Christ, have you publicly proclaimed that in baptism? If not, then I would say to you that the Savior has ordained baptism as an act of obedience for you. It is something that Matthew 28 and 19 and the pattern seen in the book of Acts makes very clear is what you are now urged to do. And so I would urge you to to give your brothers and sisters here at Grace the joyous privilege to hear from you about what Jesus has done and how he has saved you and how you are following after him. If that's you, then, then may I encourage you today, talk to one of the elders um, we, we would love to talk to you about baptism. I've also got, there's a stack of little books called Why Should I Be Baptized up here? So if, if this is an issue that you're thinking about more and you're wanting to read about some more and have conversation about, please feel free to help yourself to one of these. Um, they're, they're there for the taking. Uh, for some of you, what we've talked about this morning may be a challenge perhaps in the area of membership. Perhaps the Spirit of God is using this pattern of the New Testament to exhort you to commit, to affirm your commitment to a local body. You've been wonderfully saved by God's grace. You have declared that truth in baptism. You have proclaimed your desire to follow after him. And now it's time to live out the pledge of obeying Christ by joining a local body and confessing your accountability to that body and your desire to serve and be served within it. Friends, baptism and uniting with a local body of believers are not only commanded in the New Testament, but they are privileges that we have as believers in Jesus Christ. It is our Savior's desire and command that we acknowledge Him as Lord before others, publicly declaring our grace-enabled commitment to follow Jesus Christ. And the New Testament never envisions us doing that alone. We're called to be part of a household, a temple built with living stones, a bride who's awaiting her groom. You and I have the unspeakable joy of doing life together as the body of Christ. Individual members meld it together into a community of believers to serve our King and to love and serve one another for all of its flaws. That is still the glorious truth of the church. We belong to Jesus. We are the body he vowed to continue building, to continue adding on to, despite our own sin, despite the world's hatred and opposition, despite the opposition of Satan, we are being built together as a dwelling place for God by his spirit, Ephesians says. That's a joyous calling that we have. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gospel. Lord, I thank you that you have called people to find in Jesus Christ life and forgiveness. Lord, I pray that if there are any here Perhaps it's not even baptism or membership that's the issue, but the very act of trusting in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you, by your grace, draw them to yourself that they might see in Jesus Christ a wonderful, glorious Savior who gave himself as a ransom for sinners on the cross. Today, Lord, we pray that some would come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. And Father, thank you for your good design of a called-out body of believers who do life together. Thank you for Grace Bible Church. Thank you for sustaining this church in this location for for 40 years, for allowing it to be a place that proclaims your truth, your gospel, and, and for graciously using redeemed sinners to be a part of building a community here that seeks to love you and love and serve others. Lord, thank you for these truths. I pray that that you would help us to both meditate on them, but also to to just ponder your goodness in what you have designed. Lord, thank you that there is coming a day when when we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, will be gathered together with saints from all around the world and from all of time. And together, these called-out people, We'll worship you in your presence and declare your praises and your lordship. It is in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.